Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today we're going to look at um, the Gospel of St. Luke on chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. And in this Gospel, um, we, we oftentimes associate um, Luke's Gospel with the Gospel, you know, focusing on the poor, the Gospel that kind of marginalizes wealth. And sometimes, in an extreme sense, people will say, well, you know, that, um, that Luke is, is calling wealth basically sinful. So what is it that Luke's Gospel is telling us? And what is it that Jesus means in the parables that he speaks to his disciples concerning it? It's actually one of the very important things about our lives. And it's one of the Gospels that also um, examines our daily life, our attitudes, um, our values, and all of that kind of thing. Something very, very important to the Christian life. We're, we're, we're used to the big picture, but in, in a way, this Gospel takes us down into the ordinary, everyday life. It doesn't sound it at first, but as we look at it, begin to realize that that's exactly what it's doing. And so it's a story of the, uh, of the, the steward who was denounced to his rich master for being wasteful with his property. Um, it might even be, you know, that there was embezzlement going on. It was not unusual for a trusted slave of some kind to be put, uh, to be put in charge of the master's goods. We find that, it's interesting, because we find that in all sorts of um, societies. Um, for instance, I, I think I, I know that um, now there, it's controversial, but, but in the movie Gone with the Wind, for instance, the, the, the slaves were the trusted um, managers of, uh, of the great plantation, the great estates. And, and, I, and I think that, you know, that's gone on throughout the ages. For some reason, there, there's, a deeper, there's a deeper bond that develops in the dependency um, between a master and a slave. Obviously, slavery is not something that we support or, or think in any way, shape, or form is good, but it's just simply an observable phenomenon. And, um, and in fact, as even Paul's, uh, even St. Paul addresses this fact. But here it is, there was a rich man and he had a steward who was denounced to him for being wasteful with his property. Wasteful, embezzlement, whatever, he was a bad steward. So he called the man and he said, what is this I hear about you? Draw me up an account of your stewardship because you are not to be my steward any longer. In other words, I want a full report, a full um, exposition of what you have done with my money. And, uh, and the steward said to himself, now that my master is taking the stewardship from me, what am I to do? Dig, I am not strong enough. Go begging, I should be too ashamed. I know what I will do to make sure that when I am dismissed from office, there will be some to welcome me into his home. We have here then a mixture, for instance, because there is certainly an eschatological tone to this gospel as well. And, uh, and the microcosm of the story also reflects the macrocosm of life experience in relationship to eternity. 
And so it says then, he called his master's debtors one by one into the verse. He said, how much do you owe my master? One hundred measures of oil was the reply. And the steward said, um, here, take your bond, sit down right away and, and write fifty. Now, there's a discussion among the commentators of exactly what this means. Is this dishonest steward continuing to be dishonest and actually cheating his master out of his rightful, um, rightful debt? Or um, other commentaries say that most probable explanation is, is that he was writing off his share of what he collected. That's how tax collectors, for instance, earn their living. They earn their living by overcharging the taxes and using the excess as, as, their, uh, as their salary, as their livelihood. And, and it's one of the reasons why, the, I mean, it's one of the reasons why the tax collectors were so, so um, looked down upon within Jewish society because they were seen in a sense as extortionists um, as well as being, you know, having capitulated to the authority of the Roman Empire. But there was this, there was this uh, link between being a tax collector and being an extortionist. It's kind of like what we are familiar with in, in our own history, our own story of protection rackets, um, where we'll make sure you're safe as long as you pay up, you know, and pay us extra for that kind of protection. Um, it was the beginning, actually, of the, of the, uh, of, of the mafia movement, in, uh, especially in, in the East Coast. And so the steward then goes through, and he goes, to, he goes to each one, and he slashes what they owe. For instance, 100 measures of wheat, and the steward said, take your bond and write 80. He's, it's not an even proportion. It's not a 50%. It varies, which is why commentators think perhaps that was the profit margin for the tax collector himself or the steward himself. Now, this, now there's an interesting turn in all this, though. For the master praised the dishonest steward for his astuteness. For the children of this world are more astute in dealing with their own kind than are the children of the light. And so the master praises, and then we say, well, is he praising the fact that he stole from him? Which I think gives credence and weight to the commentators who say he probably simply wrote off his own portion, his own percentage of the profit. And the master then lost nothing in this negotiation. But then Jesus goes on to say, and so I tell you to this, use money tainted as it is to win you friends and thus make sure that when it fails you, they will welcome you into the tents of eternity. For the man who can be trusted in little things can be trusted in great, and the man who is dishonest in little things will be dishonest in great. If then you cannot be trusted with money, that tainted thing, how will you be trusted with genuine riches? And if you cannot be trusted with with what is not yours, who will give you what is your very own? And so here is where both both the, uh, the making sense of the astuteness of, of the servant, but also the eschatological dimension of the, of the gospel, saying that money is a symbol. And, you know, and in the gospel, money usually is symbolic. Money is in and of itself, of course, symbolic. It's symbolic of what the value, um, the times and the societies ascribed to it. <clears throat> um, but because it, it, it doesn't have an absolute value in itself, we can even take, you know, say, well, gold has an absolute. No, it really doesn't. Um, back in, in the 60s and 70s, gold was frozen at $33 an ounce, and now it's like $1,700 an ounce. 
So, so yeah, so it fluctuates concerning what the human need for it is. And so when, in fact, then, money can be used very easily as a, as a symbol for all sorts of realities in life, of bearing the ten coins, or bearing the coin, and giving the ten coins, and all of that kind of stuff. So Luke is never condemning money in, in itself. He's never condemning wealth in itself. He's condemning what wealth can do to us. But it isn't just the wealth of cash and investment. It's other kinds of wealth as well. Um, it's the wealth of selfishness. It's the wealth of every kind of idolatry, food and drink and drugs and sex and all of those kinds of things. All of those things are to be incorporated symbolically under the guise of money in the gospel. And, uh, and it's why, in some senses, I think we have a real problem with, uh, with dealing with, with Luke's um, understanding of it because we absolutize it in the sense of modern economy. And that's not exactly what Jesus intends to do with it. And so he says, um, yeah, he says, uh, be astute, be wise in dealing with the children of this world. In other words, a Christian needs a certain amount of, of wisdom, a certain amount of understanding, a certain amount of proportion in relationship to eternal life. That it, uh, we can't say we can't say to a person with with four children, you know, you you have to you have to you cannot accumulate any wealth, you have to give it all away. That, no, that's not what Luke is saying at all. But he's saying how you use it matters. Do you use it as a god, or do you use it as a way of assisting and taking care of your family? That's a difference. Um, do you pursue it at any cost? In other words, do you, can you trample over other people's rights? Um, and, and the answer to that is no, because then you have placed wealth uh, above the well-being of God's own children. Um, I, I think that we, we, we find that kind of distorted sense of wealth um, and in the coming of the Reformation. There's, and I think that I've even cited passages from... Max Weber's book, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. Um, it shows what happens when wealth becomes an end in itself and does not become an end for another purpose. There's a very good book by, uh, by Fanfani, who became actually Prime Minister of Italy, I think back in the 30s. Um, but he wrote a book on Catholicism, Protestantism, Capitalism. And he makes a great distinction there between the use of wealth. He says, Catholic in the Catholic capitalism began in the Catholic era, and but it began as a way of creating jobs and wealth for the well-being of the workers, <clears throat> so that people could earn a living and support their families and so forth. But that um, coming with the with the predestination of uh, of the Protestant Reformation, um, that people needed some kind of criteria to assure themselves that they had been predestined and that they were of the elect. 
and uh, and in that sense, then they used wealth. They we call it the you know the gospel of prosperity. They used wealth as a sign of God's favor to them. And eventually, whether they believed in God or not, as the centuries went on, wealth itself became it became a goal. Wealth itself became something that people sought to accumulate. We see the great abuse of it in the great capitalists, for instance, of of 19th century America, the Rockefellers, the Harrimans, the Morgans, and all of those people. Um, the, the terrible things that they did in order to increase and to retain a vast and excessive wealth. Um, Weber says that that's the result, you know, of, of the Protestant notion of predestination. It shows God's favor to them in their eyes. Well, Luke's gospel is completely contrary to that. That uh, capitalism, as Fanfani explains it, um, in the Catholic era was one that created, the, that served the common good. Capitalism, raw capitalism, without restrictions, in the post-Reformation period became in itself exploitation. So it's a question of the purpose, it's a question of what you do with it, it's a question of how it's used and how much it holds you and how much it, um, it possesses your inner life, your soul. And so, <clears throat> and so he says, so he's using this as what else possesses the human soul? What else do we use for the good of others or do we accrue simply for ourselves? And, uh, and, and to, to somehow rather strengthen our own sense of independence and well-being. In which sense, of course, once we became come a slave, and he says this in the, in the end, no servant can be the slave of two masters. He will either hate the first and love the second or treat the first with respect and the second with scorn. You cannot be the slave of both God and money. We cannot allow wealth to become the sole fixture of our life, the sole purpose of our life, the sole goal of our life. And because what it does is it takes away the freedom to act in ways that are helpful and beneficial to others. If in fact, you know we have people of great wealth who are also great philanthropists, and are we then to condemn the wealth they generated when they use it for the common good, when they use it for the good of others? Not, not, not necessarily, we can't do that. But if we take it and they, and they use it to exploit and suppress and, and others, as the 19th century ones did, then we can say, yeah, then, then it is an evil. And uh, because, first of all, it is their God. And, and they use it against the common good rather than for the common good, rather than for the well-being of others. I think that's an important distinction for us to make when we talk about capitalism, and we hear a great deal about it today, especially as we have this strange swing toward Marxism in the political world we live in. Um, that capitalism was initially and originally something that promoted the common good. It gave employment, it gave prosperity to all the people. Um, it became distorted after the 16th century, and it became an end in itself. When it becomes an end in itself, then it stands under the judgment of this gospel that we're seeing right now. Because it means that basically that is our God. And that, uh, and we are the ones then 
who are actively able to increase and, and to play the role of God in the world. At, but no servant can be the slave of two masters. And so Jesus then, going, coming, stepping back from, from the money as symbol and stepping back from the abuses of money and how it strips the person of their spiritual freedom, how it keeps them from being able even to approach or to find the Lord because they are so intent on the, interpreting the meaning and the purpose and the value of their own lives in dollars and cents. So then when Jesus says, that the, the master praised the dishonest steward for his astuteness. Um, again, that lends, as I said, that lends credence to the commentators who say he simply reduced his own profit from those loans and did not further, therefore, in any way um, cheat the master out of what was properly his so that the master could, in fact, um, praise him for his cleverness, his astuteness, his insight, and his wisdom. And so then Jesus goes into this eschatological passage. Now that he's established what, what that the, the symbolic meaning of money, he then, then he says, and I tell you this, use money tainted as it is to win you friends, and thus make sure that when it fails you, you will, will welcome you into the tents of eternity. That, in other words, use the goods that we have for the good of others in order that when, in fact, the time comes, we may come into eternity. We may be able to come before the Lord with, with, the, full, with the full conviction that uh, we have done the best we could not to become idolaters of worldly goods, passions, needs, compulsions, but that we have shared what we do have with others and that we have become the, then those who are sensitive and, and those who are in some way astute enough to see the real needs of others and use what we have to alleviate the, the hardships and the difficulties that they have in their lives. And this goes all the way from, from physical money to, to, uh, to personal relationships. And... Uh, because it is in that, then, that our salvation on earth is worked out. I mean, that's something, too, that's, that is quite controversial um, under the Christian umbrella. Um, when Catholicism actually believes that we are capable of participating in our salvation, we are capable of responding to grace, that's exactly what the whole idea of merit is. When we hear about merit in the church, we think somehow that's earning heaven. Well, not exactly. It's the, the more good we do, the greater our capacity becomes to receive the grace God gives, and the better and the more we will be able to do. So it is an internal expansion of receptivity to grace is what merit truly is in its deep, deepest meaning, in its deepest form. And so, yes, we can do that. We can respond. We can respond in what freedom we have residual in us from original sin. And we can accept God's grace and we can respond to God's grace. And uh, in so doing, we increase our capacity to respond. And that should grow within our lives without through our whole lifetime is, is one of this interaction, this relationality with the Lord. 
in which our, in our mod, in our small modicum of freedom, we try to accept what he gives us and help us to be transformed internally by it. We speak, for instance, of sanctifying grace, of that grace which makes us more capable, and in fact is most capable of receiving God's gifts, his grace, his wisdom, his truth, his word, his, his body and his blood, and so forth. So that, yeah, we believe that, and this gospel would seem to do that. How do you use the gifts that you have in this world for the good of others, in order that those who go before us might welcome us into the kingdom of heaven? It's Jesus affirming the fact that our eternity has something to do with the way that we live our lives on earth. And this is part of what I think Weber points out about the predestination notion, this idea that you know God predestines each person to either heaven or hell, and that there's nothing they can do about it, um, that it's predetermined from all eternity. Um, what does that do to our ability to respond and to grow, and to grow in wisdom, and to grow in holiness, grow in, in our knowledge and our care for others? Um, it, it, kind of, it kind of slashes the throat of, of the body of the faithful that strives to respond positively to God's grace in order that they might make the world a better place for people to live in because there will be greater understanding, greater wisdom, greater charity. And so the Lord is telling us then in this final place, in this eschatological passage, that how we live our lives has a great deal to do with how we spend our eternity. Those two things are not separate realms. We don't have just the realm of this world and the realm of that world. Those worlds mix throughout the story of our lives. They mix through the sacraments of the church. For the sacraments of the church contain the person of Jesus Christ, especially so in the Eucharist. And that therefore in our receiving them, we grow in our capacity to receive them more fully and to accept the graces that flow from them more fully because we ourselves, in our minuscule sort of way, it's, it, in, a, in a way I think symbolically, it's like, it's like during the Mass when the priest puts the prescribed five drops of water into the chalice um, and into the blood, into the wine, in order that the, the, the body and the blood of the Lord contains both the divine and the human. It's mostly God and a little bit us. But that little bit us is what makes the relationship makes the relationship firm and solid and receptive, and it makes sure that we have the capacity to return. Because what happens, and we've talked about this before, the, the critical nature of human freedom. You know, if we are compulsive in our drive for wealth, for anything, if that happens, you know, we don't, we give away our freedom for the sake of some material good or some kind of something else that we perceive as good. And we no longer have the freedom then. If God's grace enters into us, but we have no room for it, um, because we have become a slave to the, to the compulsions or the idolatrous attractions that we might have in this life, um, our freedom is gone because we have given it away and we have invested it in this world and not in the next. 
I think oftentimes, you know, in in discussing with young people things like premarital sex and things like, you know, and cohabitation and all of that, it's not that you it, it's not it's not to shame or punish them that you advise or or against that. It's because you don't want them to lose their freedom in making the most important decision in their life. And if they have become dependent on the physicality of the other person, then their freedom to choose that person at the time of the sacramental union is, is diminished. And, and that's why the hard-cold statistics are that couples who cohabitate before marriage have a higher divorce rate than those who do not. That's counterintuitive to most common wisdom. But I think that it really has to do with the question of human freedom. That people enter into marriage because oftentimes they have become physically dependent on the other person as young people. And, and when that ceases to be the sum total of, of, of the relationship, then oftentimes that kind of freedom that should have been exercised before marriage is exercised after marriage, and the person feels the need to separate themselves from something that, uh, that, that, held them, that held them bound, that ruined their capacity to make a free decision. And I think that in here we have the very same thing. What is it within us that takes away our freedom to choose God? What are the idolatrous components of our daily life? Is it money? And money becomes, in Luke, money becomes the, the symbol, the symbol of every kind of, of commitment to that which is purely material or to that which, which somehow or other strips us of our human freedom. And, uh, and it, it, we, we, have to, we, we have to be very careful of that. And it's why a gospel like this is so valuable, it is so important, because it, the, what the steward did was he let loose, probably, he let loose of what was rightfully his in order to compensate for the wrong that he had done. And in the end, in so doing what he did, he earned himself a place in the society of those who were dependent upon the master. And of course, the master in this case is God, and the steward in this case is ourselves. And the stewards therefore becomes the corporate symbol of the faithful who sin and who lose their relationship with the Lord. And the steward's prudent action is therefore to get rid of that which made him lose his freedom, which made him basically a slave to the Lord in order for what he got out of it. And by giving that up, he then made a place for himself with the faithful. He made a place for himself among the people of God. And in so doing, placed himself, therefore, in a way where he could become then one of the members who entered into the kingdom of God. The whole gospel is therefore eschatological, and the symbolism in it is strong. The, the rich man being God, the, uh, the steward being humanity, very honestly. And then what is humanity supposed to do, what it has sacrificed um, itself to um, in, in an abandonment of the primacy of the Lord? And then how is that corrected, and then what are the consequences of that? 
um, the consequences of that, that they will welcome you into the tents of eternity. So Jesus is very clearly talking about eternal life. Perhaps we might want to think about our own lives. What are those things which take away our freedom? What are those things that become more important to us than God? What are those things that hold us bound to this earth and close off for us then um, the vision and the experience of the kingdom of God? Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Then he